ladies, gentlemen, and as always, everyone in between. My name is Clifton Duncan. This is my podcast. Um, it's been a while, and I appreciate all your kind, kind comments about my absence. Um, we are here. We are doing okay. And um, we have a fantastic conversation for you, as always. I'm going to do some housekeeping first, uh, however. Uh, first and foremost, I need to thank our very first sponsor, which is uh, 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 the good people at Twin Engine Coffee. I'm sitting here enjoying my uh, Katura tea, so I'm not a coffee drinker, but if you are not, don't worry, they got you covered. Very refreshing. The good people um, at uh, Twin Engine um, are really sweet uh, um, folks, and so support small business. And uh, I'll leave the links below in the description. And uh, you know it helps me out too, and help keep this channel going. And you can also help this channel uh, or this podcast grow by sharing it with everyone that you know. If you love it, please share it with your friends. And if you hate it, please share it with your enemies. Um, that said, here we go. So today, I. Uh, have a very, very interesting person. Uh, he is a best-selling author of books such as The Strange Death of Europe, uh, which is a pretty uplifting work, and uh, The Madness of Crowds, <laughs> The Madness of Crowds, um, which uh, is a little more a little more of a fun read. Um, and on top of all of that, his massive success and braininess, he's been hitting the gym, so he is now a certified thirst trap. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the inimitable uh, and the formidable Douglas Murray. Mr. Murray, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. Clifton, it's a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you for the kind introduction. <laughs> of course, of course, of course. Well, you know, I was telling Douglas uh, beforehand that uh, my life doesn't make any sense um, because... I, uh, you know, I was in New York City and doing the whole actor thing, and uh, I had learned to keep silent about my um, some of my socio-political beliefs. But yet, I would, in my spare time, uh, I would, uh, you know, maybe imbibe some substances of the herbal variety and, um, you know, play a little Tetris and uh, search for videos about people destroying and owning others. And uh, Douglas is one of the people uh, that uh, I, I found. Uh, most exciting to watch, uh, very eloquent, a fiery debater, wonderful speaker, and a very clear uh, and uh, sensitive thinker. And that, that sensitivity, I think, is what um, really prompted me to reach out to you, because um, if I'm not mistaken, you wanted to be a musician at one point. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. I trained as a musician when I was younger. Oh, um, and what instrument? And I, piano. Uh, as I, I sort of thought I was going to be a composer. Um, uh, and... Um, at some stage in my teenage years, sort of interest in words took over. I suddenly became aware that I was even more interested in the words that were being set than I was in, in, in the music. But I mean, they, they, to say one is more important than the other to me isn't, isn't true. I, you, you can't separate them out, obviously. But for some reason, I became aware that I was more capable of words. Um, so now for my, I, I play for my, pleasure, my own pleasure still. I play the piano um, occasionally for the pleasure of other people, or at least for the toleration of other people. Um, but uh, but but yes, I'm I'm um, music's an incredibly important part of my life. Like, that song, uh, music was my first love. It, it sort of applies to me. I think it applies to me as well, honestly. I mean, I, I love singing more than anything else. Maybe at some point we can hit one of the uh, one of the cabaret bars in the village. <laughs> Let's do that <laughs> and burn and burn the place down. Um, but I, I guess the point is that uh, 
you know, I, I sense in you the soul of an artist. And I think your sensitivity, I mean, even in the, um, the Strange Death of Europe, for instance, you wrote with such sensitivity about um, the migrants themselves who were coming over. Um, or in The Madness of Crowds, when you write about the trans issue, um, mm -hmm. you're writing, you know, very, very sensitively about it. And, and so I said, you know, there, there's something, there is, um, for all your, your, your far right lunacy, <laughs> there's still <laughs> there, there's still a a, a very sensitive uh, soul in there, and you know I, I guess in a way you strike me as a little bit unusual. And I, I spoke to Heather McDonald uh, last time, um, who is fantastic. Uh, so I'm sure you're well aware, um, and. She also has a great love of language. And uh, the, the mm -hmm. thing that you two have in common is that you're both able to um, really, really eloquently and um, what's the word I'm looking for? You're able to write about the beauty of art and with a, a lushness and, uh, and, and a rapture, which I think is unusual. And I wanted to talk to her a little bit about this. I didn't get a chance to, but I wanted to ask you this question. Um, you know, I, I feel like on the on the right, there is a a big there is a failure to understand the importance of uh, culture and art specifically. Completely, Completely. and <laughs> and you know, it's it's fine to focus on foreign policy and economics mm -hmm. and those types of things, which is really really important. But I also feel mm -hmm. like. One of my frustrations is, yes, there is great hostility, even to moderate or independent voices in many of these artistic mediums. But mm -hmm. I think part of it is, you know, the sort of pragmatism of, of, um, of a conservative minded person says, well, it's arts and it's not really a stable paycheck. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how can you raise a family so on and mm -hmm. so forth? So I understand those concerns. But I also feel like uh, there is a, a tendency to, to downplay the the role of art uh, in, a, in a society. And, and I was curious yes. as to your as to your um, your thoughts, A, on why there seems to be such a blind spot on the right uh, towards the mm -hmm. arts, and then B, a larger question, which is what do you, what do you feel is a function of, of art in, in a society mm -hmm. in general, but, but, even, but maybe even our society right now? Yeah, no, that's a very interesting, important question. And it's one I've thought about a fair amount because it, it certainly is the case that um, um, the arts are, let's say, discussed more on the political left than on the political right. Uh, they seem to feature more, they're more, they are often presented as if they're more of a social um, uh, a question. Um, I mean, it, it, is, it, would, it would be almost unthinkable for a right-wing politician to say, you know, the answer to this problem lies in song. Uh, whereas a left-wing politician may well say, and that's why we should now you know, do this song. It's, it's, you know, I mean, it's, let me give another example. I mean, as a Danish politician, I know who's uh, conservative and, um, she uh, she once said to me, you know, she and her husband go to a lot of concerts and, and things. And she said that she bumps into her sort of left wing colleagues and, and, and they said, what are you doing here? You know? And um, outside of a couple of rarefied art forms, such as opera, I think that sort of is, is an assumption. And I think there are several reasons for it. One is a self-fulfilling prophecy, which is that the arts are inevitably or have inevitably in recent decades been dominated by the left. And therefore... Um, conservative-minded people or right-wing people uh, feel left out. Um, I, I've had that a, a little bit. I can't say a lot, but a, a little bit of my life. Um, I, I was once at a concert after the Brexit vote in 2016. I happened to vote Brexit. It doesn't matter. It wasn't a particularly left-right issue. But, you know, and the conductor, the Berlin Philharmonic, uh, Daniel Barenboim, turned around to the audience at the end of the audience and gave us a lecture about why Brexit was terrible. 
And, you know, and you do sort of think, oh, hell, even here, I'm not, you know, there's nowhere safe from left-wing politicking and, 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 and there's a sort of, uh, and I've had that a fair amount in theatre in New York, actually, of going to things. I had it at something called American Utopia recently, David Byrne. Terrific show, but inevitably there's a bit of left-wing politicking in it. And, you know, and you just come out and you think, oh, can I do this? You know, do I always have to be lectured to uh, in this in this way? So inevitably, in a way, that does drive half the population away. Um, another reason is, I think, that uh, the right tends, as you say, Clifton, to focus on things like economics, foreign policy, in the belief that if you get these things right, the rest follows. And there's some truth in that, you know, if economic, if the economics goes wrong, everything goes wrong in society. You know? If people's standard of living keeps falling, everything else can go wrong. Um, if, it, if it keeps rising, you know, lots of other stuff you can ignore because it sort of goes right. Um, so there is a sort of desire, I think, on the right to ignore certain things and focus on a few, the few big things as it's seen. I think that's a mistake because um, culture is, is you can't you might not say it's as important as economics in the short term but in the long term of course it is uh what economists do we remember from the 18th century compared to the artists we remember and so on um and the influence that they have poets and, and many others and i suppose a third thing is that in in some ways it's inevitable that the artistic mind veers towards the left and the reason for that is that, that artistic minds are inevitably open. Now, this isn't to say that conservative minds are not, but the conservative mind says, we must, however, have some limits. We've got to have some rules. And in a way, I see that as the dialectic of politics. The left you know, comes up with limitless ideas, and then the right says, well, if these have to be constrained in some way. Um, and, you know, let's say the left will dream of open borders and the right says, if you have open borders, you don't have a state, you don't have a welfare state, you, do, you don't have, in the end, the country. So some, some rules have to be imposed, but perhaps inevitably, the sort of mind that, that ignores rules is going to be a creative mind and therefore slightly lean towards the left. But of course, that isn't entirely the case, it's certainly not the case universally, because there are so many creative figures who, who who um, have conservative instincts. And the one thing I would say about that as well is that in actual fact, the properly creative mind has to be a combination of both of these things, because as you know, it's not enough to just dream. You've got to have the, the hard work, the skill, everything else, which you might say, I'm not, I'm being very reductive, but you might say a sort of conservative thing. You've got to do the work. You know, if you're a musician, you have to train. You can't not, you can't just pick up the clarinet or the saxophone and just start blowing. Um, you've, got, you've got to work. So it doesn't matter in a way, you know, well, it doesn't matter how much feeling you have if you don't have the skill. So, and it's the same with writing. You know, you may have the idea that you can encompass the world in what you're saying, but unless you actually work and refine your craft, um, it's, you'll be no good. So, but, but, but there is an inevitable, as I say, there is a thing built in that means that there is a slight bias toward the left-wing mind and the in creativity. Well, it's, it's funny because I often joke and, um, you know, I, I think uh, it was Jordan Peterson who, who sort of mentioned the, the psychological aspects of people 
being more conservative minded or more liberal minded. And it's, you know, and that idea is sort of why I, I joke that, uh, you know, I, I just, if I were to run a company, like a theater company or a production company, I, I just need to focus on the, the acting part of it. And I'll get some conservative person to, to run the company. Uh, right. That, that's, that's, yeah. that's what I, that's what I would, that's my, yeah. like my ideal sort of setup. I mean, you wouldn't but, want a wild, a wildly, um, a wildly, I don't know, um, imaginative, leftist open-minded person doing like the business side of it no i want to do a you scene want... with that person <laughs> right right you know? um, so then it leads me to a, a another aspect which is um i mean like you and, and i'm sure my listeners are are tired of hearing this statement but uh, but uh, like yourself i i am an atheist but at the same time and, you know, and I don't know, maybe, maybe you've changed on that on that perspective, but I know, especially over the last two years, um, two and a half years, um, I've, and I've, I haven't used this kind of language before, but I'm thinking to myself, you know, I hear conservatives talk about uh, the God-shaped hole in society, yeah. and I, I think to myself, okay, if we're in a society in which we're moving further and further away towards religion or Christianity specifically, and more towards a secular sort of thing, mm -hmm. is there, is the only hope maybe for people to find some sort of meaning and a sense of transcendence and a sense of awe really, um, mm -hmm. is it, maybe, maybe art is that solution? Yes, uh, th that, that, is, um, that is a possibility. Uh, I actually wrote about that a little bit in Strange Death of Europe, because of course this was tried in the 19th century. Um, I mean, Wagner and others um, actually set out to replace religion with art. Um, and it's, it's, a very, um, it's a very tricky question, that, because my own belief is that, it, 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 um, that the arts can fill a very significant part of the God-shaped whole, but, but almost certainly not the whole thing or at least it can't fill the whole thing without ending up having to make a truth claim of its own. And that's, uh, that, that, which is where, which is where Wagner um, slips up in a way um, in that you end up creating a new religion um, and falling into all of the same traps. I, I mean, you can live the religion of Wagner. It's a pretty unhappy religion to live in as it happens. Um, but you know that that is that that is one of the possibilities. I I have a slightly um, different view of that. I, I partly, of course, because we know where the nineteenth century artists who thought that perhaps erred, and I, it's, it's terrible to say that because we're talking about monumental figures. But um, I have a slightly different view, which is that, um, and this is a sort of view of aesthetics I learned from, among others, one of my great influences, Roger Scruton, which is that. Um, one should regard the arts as being um, a, a glimpse into something which we don't know and can't understand, but we know speaks to us of truth. So that feeling you get when you hear a piece of music for the first time, or perhaps for the millionth time, or come across a line of, of, of poetry or verse or line of prose that suddenly hits you in solar plexus and, or sometimes completely transports you, that 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 isn't just um, a feeling. Um, it's not just uh, a nice feeling like having a drink. It's 
a um, a sign of something, that it's a a glimpse of something you 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 would like to reach, at the same time as knowing that you almost certainly cannot ever in this life quite reach it. Um, and and so in other in other words, it's it, it's it's something you have to hold on to when you find it because it's telling you something. I'm glad you brought up uh, uh, Mr. Scruton, um, you know, because I think he's he was very instrumental in sending me on this journey to just to try to find deeper meaning for mm. art. Because um, when you're, mm. especially when you're in a market like New York, and um, you know, it, it it does become a job after a while. The, the great acting mm. teacher Uta Hagen um, opens her book uh, Respect for Actors, talking about how she became really burned out, and uh, she was relying on tricks or whatever. But then um, I think it said her husband, the great director, Harold, Harold Clerman, mm. uh, challenged her to go deeper into her work and to be more truthful and, and to really, really dig and do the work, as you said before, uh, mm. <laughs> for a more conservative mm. point of view, um, to find what that, what the, what the truth is. And so the, the, the broader point I'm getting at is that, um, you know, I was thinking to myself, okay, I'm, I'm sitting here where, you know, no one's working right now. And um, I've been deemed non-essential. Um, so how, so maybe this is time to reflect on what is the meaning of all of this and what all of it means. Mm. And, and so I stumbled on his, um, uh, his short film, the, you know, why beauty matters. Yes. And that is when I began to think about these ideas of, of beauty and, uh, form and transcendence was, is mm. a big one for me. And I guess yes. that, that's, that's why I began to ask more of a religious or maybe the spiritual questions, this, this idea of transcendence, you know, and uh, mm. I, I tell the story about when I went to the uh, National Gallery of Art in, um, in Washington, D.C. It's an unbelievable collection. Um, and it's free. And it's free. Yes, yes. Just walk right in there. Yeah. Um, it's unbelievable. So, you know, I was doing this play in D.C. and I was really depressed about things. I was very, you know, I was in my 20s and very angsty. And I had a mentor who was saying, um, he's trying to help me suss it out. He, he, and he just kept saying to me, go to the museum, go to the museum, go to the museum, go to the museum. Mm. And um, finally, I took him up on, on that advice. And um, you know, I'm walking through all these beautiful paintings. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of impressionism, but I stopped at this sculpture and it was a, um, and I can't think of the name of it in, in particular, but it was, it, you know, I'm, I'm over six feet, but this, this, it was this, um, it was like a, a, a Catholic, ah, I can't remember what, what the name of it was. I, I wrote about it, um, but I'm, I'm watching, I'm looking at this sculpture, which is like 500 years old and the amount of detail and vision <laughs> and devotion and dedication. And I began to, I began to cry um, mm. because I, I thought of the enormity of me sitting here in the early, I think it was 2010, watching, looking at this sculpture, which was done hundreds of years ago, <laughs> yes. and being so moved and so, and just so stunned by the fact that a human being made this. And then I began to get a sense that right then and there, like, oh wait, this is what it's about there's something that you, yes. you can't articulate it you can't quite put your finger on it but what i'm feeling right now that's what it is maybe the, the experience yes. of being alive or something beyond yourself yes you know? that's i'd say two things that's a very moving and recognizable story um i'd say two things firstly um that instinct is one which i mean various poets and artists have reached to try to explain there's a there's a rather beautiful poem by a minor poet from the 19th century um, Henley uh, called to a poet a thousand years hence um, and um, that poem is sort of basically is 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 to somebody 
discovering the work again and and that one of um, one of the lines is you know is that the voice from the past says i i was a poet i was young um and this 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 voice speaking from the past feels as if it's speaking directly to you and in a sense is uh, that that is also one of the points of creation that you that you speak across the, the centuries that somebody speaks across the centuries to you and says i was a poet i was young i was young like you um and another another point from that is what rilke says in his um um in his sonnet um on the uh, uh after after rilke sees the antique bust of apollo and rilke tries to explain what what the thing is that this antique this um uh, this bust of, from you know millennia before uh, is saying to him and because he has that moment of of transcendence of of clarity and and rilke says that the the the, the bust says to him you must change your life and that, that that's it's an extraordinarily important insight by Rilke because that is, it is one of the things that something that is very beautiful um, can say to you. Uh, it says, this is a transformational moment. You've just been reached out to from the past and there's a message. Um, uh, we don't always hear the words as clearly as Rilke did, but it's something like that as a transformational experience. And and um, it's, it's one of the most thrilling things in life. That because as I say, I think it's telling us something. Well, you know, it's fascinating because here we are talking about transcendence and beauty and meaning. And yet um, we are in the midst of an arts culture now, which I view as very nihilistic, um, mm -hmm. very um, and very hollow and really tries to deny this idea that there, I think part of it is, a, is an innate sort of anti-religiosity, maybe the idea of the spirit or the soul, which is sort of, I think, what we're, what we're kind of talking around. Yes, the soul is a good word for it, exactly. And an yeah. almost lost word. But, well, it, it, you know, and here's the thing, because I, I said to myself, um, I, I, if this were three years ago, four years ago, I would not even be using this language at all. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it kind of goes back into, you know, we, we talked, we opened talking about the, the sort of um, blind spots on the, on the right, but for all the create, but I find that now, uh, maybe on the political left, the modern left, whatever you want to call it, for all of their supposed dedication to, um, to rationality and to, mm -hmm. you know, they think they have a monopoly on sophistication and an intelligence, obviously, but sure. um, just as, just as though, just as economics is not enough, um, mm -hmm. I think that they have seduced themselves into believing that being super brainy and quote unquote educated, um, if we want to use that term, I use it loosely mm -hmm. um, describing these folks, but um, you know, we have all this technology and all of this uh, quote unquote science, but they, they, they pride themselves on their intelligence. And I wonder if that in a, in a weird way has fueled this nihilism in terms of like, well, there's nothing more mm. than this. There's nothing more uh, than what's happening now. Well, I'd add one other thing to that, which is I think actually the the the, uh, the overemphasis on the left is not on intelligence but on empathy. There's mm. this idea that it, that that the more empathetic you are, the better, mm. and that the more society is empathetic, the better society will be. And I I think this is just an outright fallacy. Uh, it, it's 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 like saying the more rules there are, the better. 
you know, on its own, it makes no sense. Empathy is, is an important thing. It's an important thing in a human being. We should all have the ability to have empathy. If people don't have the ability to have empathy, we all know that that makes them more basically a psycho. Um, but equally, uh, and equally, if somebody only is interested in sort of rules and boundaries, I think, you know, that's, that's a problem. But again, if, you're, if you don't have any interest in rules and boundaries, that is going to be a problem in your creative life, in your, in your personal life, um, and much more. And so this emphasis on empathy ignores the fact that empathy on its own is not enough. You know, the world's problems would not be solved if we had more and more empathetic people in government. I mean, in actual fact, we have people in government in most of the Western world who positively um, uh, dis over display, boast about their empathy, you know, emote as they speak, as if they, they want to impress upon us that they really feel this so deeply, because then we, the public, go, oh, they're so empathetic. Oh, they understand. You can do that whilst not solving a darn thing. And... Um, you know, you, you, you can't solve the economy by being empathetic. In fact, you can't solve poverty um, by being empathetic. You can't solve people's personal problems by being empathetic. Very often what people actually lack is somebody standing over them and saying, this is what you need to do to sort yourself out. It, it, they've actually suffered from an overdose of empathy in their lives. So I do think that the arts in recent years have been, have overdone the significance of empathy alone. And then, of course, they've also become mon monomaniacally, boringly political in one direction. I mean, as I say, I mean, actually, the example I gave earlier, David Burns' show, American Utopia, just happened. I, I, I went to it with Jordan Peterson and his wife when they were in town. And, um, we always go to some shows. And you know, I said to Jordan after that one, I said, I just can't bear it anymore. I just feel like I can't go to any shows because I know I'll always be told the same thing. You know, at some point in the show, we will have the BLM song or a reference to that. And I went to I went to see Daniel Craig doing uh, Macbeth on yes. Broadway yeah. the other week, and I mean, I I thought pretty much only he and Lady Macbeth were the good things in it. Hmm. Everything else was a mess because it was way beyond, for instance, colorblind casting. It was like deliberately um, skewing the plot casting. So. Uh, Banquo was a black woman and one of Banquo's assassins was in a wheelchair I mean you know and I well I don't know it's quite easy to escape from an assassin in a wheelchair I'm just going to go on a gravelly path it's not I mean, I'm walk up a hill jeez I mean <laughs> but you know it's just walk just, 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 just walk away just walk. <laughs> I mean as it happened thank goodness he had a gun and he shot her with a gun Oh, uh, nice. But it, yeah, but but I mean, even so, you you could have ducked and 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 then gone right or something. Yeah. Anyhow, but or gone around the back. I don't know. It was just it was just very very irritating that we were being told we basically everything about the casting. We were being told, don't you dare notice anything weird about any of this. Don't don't notice this. We're just gonna like immerse you in all the difference and that's the thing now and i don't mind it it's not like it annoys me enormously it's just that i i know that's what's going to happen it's like you know that you just can't have a straight production of anything with the exception of by the way i'd like to know your views on this with the exception of some musicals which are so popular that they don't dare muck with them i think i'm right on that would you agree that like some absolute blockbuster musicals 
you they don't play with because they need they need to have so many bums on seats for so long that you actually can't get away with the lecturing. I think it depends on what the show is. Um, like mm. Lincoln Center has been really, really successful in reviving old um, Rodgers and Hammerstein shows. Mm. Uh, the King and I, they did recently was a smash hit. Mm. Um, but then, you know, I, I was really, really trying to get a revival of Carousel going. I, I, you know, I love the role of Billy Bigelow. Ooh, and, oh, that's difficult. And yeah, well, it, but, you know, I, I think that mm. that show reveals so, you know, it, it reveals some ugly truths about who we are as human yes. beings, you know. And uh, but they ended up doing it uh, with other people. And I, um. I and I didn't see it, but I did read about all the cuts they made. They, they tried to yes. soften the edges. Well, and, I'm not surprised, Griffin, because I mean, I saw the film again only a few years ago mm. and I was it was one of those things I, I sort of gasped at a couple of times, uh, you know, the sort of um, feeling the, the pleasure of the of the slap on the face, which she describes at one point. And you think, whoa, that wouldn't work now. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, but. But, but for me, you know, my, my actor training, you know, I went to one of these fancy conservatories and it was all about, you know, your, your appetite for the work and your appetite for the uglier places mm. of, of life um, is, is what will separate you from merely competent performers to extraordinary mm. performers. And so it's really galling for me to see people who are so obsessed with, you, you, mentioned, you said empathetic, um, but you've also mentioned in the past the word harmless. And mm. um, they, they're obsessed mm. with being harmless, and my and it goes yes, against my yes. my instincts, which say like, no, you know, you have to get a little, you have to you have to be a little bit ugly. You have to be willing to muck around and mm. and show, you know, sorry, like you know, Billy Bigelow. I think the the ideal interpretation is like, you know, he's very charming and charismatic, mm. but um, you can't shy away from that. That's that's part of the richness of the character. You don't, yes. you, you know, and you don't have to like him, but you can. You still don't have to like him. him exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, that that's almost um, yes. That that I I I don't know why because we're always being told that the arts are interested in complexity and they're really not at the moment. They're interested in real simplicity, um, to the extent that when you do actually find something in which um, the figures are sort of complex, I, I find it's genuinely complex. I find it's an enormous relief. I don't know if you saw White mm -hmm. Lotus, for instance. No. Uh, a little while ago, I think it was HBO. Uh, anyhow about released about a year ago it's sort of five or six part drama and um one of the great reliefs of it was you know you sort of looked at the cast at the beginning and you thought oh god i know who's going to be the good guys and who's going to be the bad guys and you know and they and it was all it was all unpredictable you know people who you thought were going to be you know the, the sort of boringly good people turn out to be a little bit bad around the edges the bad guys turn out to have redeeming qualities and, and much more and and it was just such a relief because you thought, yes, I'm being treated like an adult because this is the world as I know it. This is the world as we all know it. And, and I'm not just being sermonized to, you know, and, and that, that's, yeah, that's the thing that really bothers me. But, um, but yes, as you say, uh, the, the um, as, well, as I was saying, there must be, there, there definitely are some bits of popular culture which they don't muck up muck around with as much because they know that the audience needed it has got to be very wide i think in specific art forms i mean the visual arts um uh modern art galleries and so on they're, they're basically catering they're not really catering to the mass public maybe they never were but they really aren't bothering and they're catering to a highly select group of people who know how to speak the relevant language and don't mind the crap 
Douglas, I, I got to tell you. So A, don't feel bad about kind of rolling your eyes because I actually stopped going to shows in New York a long time ago because what you just said, I, I discovered, you know, I said, you know, they're not making shows for the audience. They're making shows mm. for themselves. They're making shows for their peers. They're, right. they're, they're producing work that will keep them in the good graces of their colleagues. Yeah. And this includes... Uh, this includes, uh, you know, critics and, you know, directors and producers and various sorts of people who have all of the right beliefs. And the thing is, you know, I'm going to I'm going to um, uh, push back on you a little bit. And you say it's become this. And there's this great essay written by a man named uh, Albert Maltz. I think it was uh, written back in mm -hmm. 1946 called uh, What Shall We Ask of Writers? If you haven't uh, seen it. I'll oh, I'd love to. to. I'd love. Would you send it? It's to so good. It's so good. And here's mm. this, you know, so this conversation has been happening for about 75 years. So like, so at least 75 years. So Albert Maltz, who was a, 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 a diehard leftist, wrote this essay where he's like, it, well, he was he was responding to a um, an essay by a guy named uh, Isidore Schneider, I think his name was, uh, printed in New Mass in like 1943 or something. And Isidore no. Schneider was trying to start this conversation about the problems in super rigid left wing um, thought and how and the impact mm. on artistic output. And so Albert Maltz says, you know, what shall we ask of writers? And he has this concept of like, you know, he had these people are are using art as a weapon. And mm. he, he calls he calls their work um, political pamphlets, like they're not plays. Yes. And um, one of the yes. things that I love deadly, that he, that he, deadly. Yes. Yeah. And and uh, you know and but he I mean he's very he's lacerating in in his criticisms. Mm. He says you know this particular strain of social political thought. I mean I'm paraphrasing obviously, but yes. you know it, it's it's so limiting to yes. to the artistic well, process. <clears throat> well, that was obviously a, that was obviously in the 1930s in particular. And again, particularly on the left, there was a kind of pamphleteering writing, for sure. Um, and, and that was for obvious reasons. I mean, the world was in a, in a very important um, ideological <laughs> struggle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, but I mean, you think of some of the plays, for instance, written in response to um, uh, the civil war in Spain and so on. And I mean, you, you, it just it doesn't transmit today because effectively, as, as you say, it's a socio-political tract. So, or a call to action, um, and and there was some music from the time of, of the same thing. And in a way, it's understandable if if you feel like the world's about to burn. Perhaps you know. You, I mean, I mean, one of the oddities, by the way, of that period that always returns to me is is the people is I at any rate have ambiguous feelings about the people who strangely rose above it and seemed not to notice it. I mean, like late Richard Strauss, you can't say he didn't notice it, but he does some weird, beautiful writing, but you think, but the war, the world is just burned. And, and in a way it's admirable that you're still just pursuing your craft. And in another way, you can't help feeling a certain, um, um, just a worry that somebody could do that. And, and that's not to say that in his case that everything was like that and everything ignored it, but some things did ignore the world around him. Um, same thing with certain writers. Uh, you think, why were you doing this when, when the world was burning? But yet, at the other hand, the fact that they could keep doing things that were not just the political was a reminder of why the world needed to continue. You know, it, it, it needed to not only be reduced to the political. But yes, it is, this was a... This, this, this certainly has been a, a, the case in the past. What's interesting at the moment is, by contrast, there's not really, and I, mean, I think we have all sorts of social and political problems in our age, but 
There's nothing really as clear cut as that, nowhere near. And yet uh, we get this, this political intrusion on the arts. I had, I had an interesting conversation some years ago um, with our theater critic at The Spectator, um, who's a terrific uh, um, writer, Lloyd Evans. Um, he can often do with the reviews things that I think other people can't manage in a book. And uh, I, I once said to him, um, uh, I, you know, I really admire the fact that you, you, you stick it out, like right? night after night, you have to go to play after play and like, things like the Royal Court in London, which hasn't put on a good play in decades. And, you know, and I said to him, you know, I really admire the fact you go to all these things like six days a week or so, and, you know, you haven't gone mad. And, um, and he, and during the conversation, he said at one point something very interesting. He said, well, he said, the thing is, Doug, is that theater is not really the theater anymore. And I think what he meant was, he didn't mean all of the theater, but a certain segment of the theater, the, the new plays that get on, the critics like him have to go to. He said, the theater is not really the theater anymore. I, I said, what do you mean? What, what do they think they are? He said, I, they think they're a think tank. And mm. I, I, I thought that was such a brilliant insight. Yeah, they think they're a think tank, and that the, they are the place that ideas will come from. And once you realize that, you also realize part of the frustration of some of the people in that industry is you, you'll know them better than I do. But the frustration of imagine if you did think you were putting out ideas night after night, but you're doing it to a two hundred seater theater, which is mainly empty, or you know, you've only got a run of a few weeks. Like it's a very bad way to pump out political theory or social ideas. It's very ineffective just as a medium if that's what you're trying to do. Well, there's also, you know, I think, I think people sometimes they say, well, you know, you don't want any politics in, in the work at all. And I said, no, you know, the politics can inform what the work is. Um, but it, it's just that when the politics is... Um, when the, when the politics supersedes the story craft and the, and, and the artwork. I mean, Is Isidore Schneider uh, said a line, which is really great. I said, you know, nothing has to be politically correct as long as it's true. And um, yes. I, I was like, that yes. is, that's just such a great. That's a great line. That's <laughs> great a great line. At it. Um, yes. In fact, the things that are politically incorrect, but true are in some ways the most exciting thing. I mean, the, 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 to my mind, one of the great thrills of, of reading is um, th that moment uh, where you discover that somebody else thought something you thought that no one else had thought. Um, uh, and of course, when you're young, this happens more. As you get older, it's a slightly harder itch to scratch. But particularly when you're young and you read, you think, oh God, I thought it was just me that ever thought that. And then this wonderful moment of recognition and, and of course, there are times, even as a grown-up, where you do have that feeling. And it's a great thrill. You think, oh, gosh, I'm so glad I'm not the only person who thought that. Um, even, I mean, I was listening to uh, an interview the other day with a late friend of mine, Clive James, who was a great poet and polymath. And he said somewhere, you know, he mentioned the, the thing of writers. I mean, we have, like, inter-writer problems that other like non-writers don't know, but one of the guilts of being a writer is always the fear that you're on. Um, and this is a form of self-criticism in a way, but writers should have a certain fear that everything is material. 
And Clive gave the example of, you know, a friend of his when he was young who died in a motorcycle accident in Sydney. And Clive wrote a poem about it, which has a great closing line about it. He says something like, he says, it's the problem with us. We overreach ourselves. Um, but, and actually Clive said, actually, I'm not sure that is a problem with us. The, problem, the, the great thing about us is that we overreach ourselves. So he sort of disagreed with himself. But he, commenting on this decades later, he just mentioned the fact that even when he heard from the women in the street that his friend had died in the motorcycle accident, he was aware that something in his head was saying, I can use this. And, and that is that is a writer's curse, is that I can't remember who said that when you've got a writer in the family, you know, it's like a powder keg. I mean, it's because everything is potential material to the writer and and writers feel guilty about that. But but once you discover that other writers felt guilty about that as well, it's a great relief. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> it sort of it reminds me of um, I was reading a biography of Warren Beatty. And oh, yeah. uh, the, the thing I love about uh, Warren Beatty, um, remarkably intelligent guy, but at the same mm. time, he also completely owned the vanity, the, the inherent vanity in being an actor. He's like, look, my mm. best shots, I look my best from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. That's when we're doing my close-ups. Oh, and, really? um, you know, he's like, I wanted to be really famous. And so, so there's a... So I was like, watching okay. Reds, Reds recently. Oh, I haven't seen that. Oh, yeah, yeah. What a film. Yeah, I think he won an Oscar for it, didn't he? It, it's sort of weirdly been memory hold, I thought. But yes, he won an Oscar for it. I think it should be seen by everybody. Unbelievable film. Yeah. Sorry, anyhow, I interrupted. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, it, it's, just, uh, it's just the fact that, you know, oh, OK, I don't feel so bad now. <laughs> right. <laughs> that, you, you know, you kind of have to have that self-awareness. Yeah. But it, it's, it's interesting. You know, we keep talking about um, we keep talking about the past and um, relative to the now, but there is a concerted effort now to sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater and forget mm. everything about the past instead of it, yes. except for all the things that we didn't like about it. And um, that's uh, that sort of helps me segue into um, this little doohickey right here called the oh, yeah. War on, on the West. I don't know if you've heard of this book, um, <laughs> but... <laughs> But uh, I've heard it, I've heard tell of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, some some guy wrote it. I don't know who he is, but uh, it, 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 you you go over many many aspects in the book. But uh, as this is a an, an arts focused podcast, I was really really honing in on your um, on the last section of the book, which is the culture section of the book. And you write, mm. I, I love. Um, you know, I, I sort of came by my, maybe my artistic red pilling. Um, maybe it sort of was my overall red pilling, but I said to myself, you know, these old plays, what I began to realize, you know, you, cause you do, you read around the plays, you research them um, and try to get a sense of, you know, what life was like for, you know, for mm -hmm. the author, what, you know, what he was trying to accomplish and, uh, you know, and what context uh, he was writing in. And um, I said to myself, you know, I go back and I read these Greek plays. I read Shakespeare. I read Chekhov. And what I mm. notice is that the, the, even though customs change, mores change, um, you know, we get all this new technology, um, civilizations kind of shift and, and this, that, and the third. But fundamentally, what motivates human beings has remained largely unchanged yes. <laughs> for thousands yes. and thousands of years. Yes. And so my, my fear is that, uh, and it's not, you know, 
things really accelerated after George Floyd died. Now, I, you know, you, I think you're my third or fourth um, um, uh, British guest that I've had on the show. So I always have to apologize that whatever we flush down the cultural toilet here in the United States happens to float up uh, across that the pond. It's a beautiful image, but you're quite right. <laughs> well, I, I, I know you're annoyed by it. So that's, that's the imagery I use. Um, uh, but... Uh, <laughs> So now I lost my train of thought, um, but but I'm, I'm reading these old plays and and um, and thinking to myself, you know, they they teach us so much about who we are, but now we're mm. we're, we're eliminating, you know, like you know, I, I don't love that Shakespeare uses, you know, the term Ethiop, for instance, as as a slur, but it doesn't mm. it doesn't diminish my enjoyment of mm. the insanity of of the lovers fighting in a Midsummer Night's Dream because it's about something mm. bigger than that, and yes, um, it, it's just this weird yes push to to um burn that we you know we have to tear down the past and you know, mm. we have to deconstruct it and um my, my my feeling has been for a long time that we are ignoring these works in our peril for one um it kind of goes back to what you were saying about you know how the theater isn't the theater anymore mm. and I, I i think that we are in a culture now where we don't because the the work being put out by writers you know is so rigid and so narrow in so many ways mm it's not challenging the performers. So there's a sort of cultural malaise setting in that I don't think, mm -hmm. I don't think we have a, a culture now that can produce another Olivier or Gilgood mm. or Redgrave, mm. you know, cause oh, you know, or, or yeah. here, or James Earl Jones or Denzel Washington. We don't, mm. we don't, no one needs to be that good anymore because yes. <laughs> they just have to have yes. the right opinions. I'd like, I, I, I'm actually, I'm slightly more positive on that. I think these people do just come along I, and I think they can't be kept down. You know, um, I, I mean, you think of the way in which uh, Denzel Washington or uh, Lawrence Olivier, I think they just they just come up and like just by sheer force of of talent, uh, ambition, and more, in a way, can't be kept down. I hope that's always going to be the case. I think it is actually, and that the era is never perfect your situation is never perfect yourself. Um, you know, a certain degree of luck exists, but, but, but actually, um, I mean, I would just caveat that with one thing, which is acting may be the only profession where talent doesn't always out. Oh, in no. that, yeah, I mean, it, it maybe it very often doesn't, uh, and that there's just other things that, um, for instance, you know, the very attractive, person is at a great advantage over the not so attractive person and much more whereas for instance in the performing art in other performing arts say a pianist who's just very good will be recognized in a way that I think an actor who's very good but hasn't quite got, will not be but that caveat aside um um I do think that that that, that just talented people will always break through and um and and the and the key thing is they have the material to perform with. And funnily enough, even very talented actors, I think I think make gems of things that are um, are not that great. I mean, there's a play on that's just been revived in London called Jerusalem by Jez Butterworth. Mark um, Rylance. Mark Rylance, exactly. Right. Now I, I haven't seen the revival, but I saw the first production ten years ago. And in fact, I was at the last performance. And I mean, we all had tears in our eyes. It was unbelievable. And but you came away from it. And actually, it was very hard to. I think Jez Butterworth's a very fine playwright, but but 
you actually couldn't work out whether the, the play you've just seen was great or it was great because there was a great central performance. In other words, if it hadn't been Mark Rylance, if it had been almost anybody else, would I have come away saying this is a great work? And I don't know, but that's because that's what great actors can do. They can take almost anything and transform it. It's funny. I saw it. I saw it in New York, and did um, you? actually, I went to sleep during it. But no, <laughs> I what? did. I, I'm what? a horrible person. But just, I'm, I'm turning off. Uh, well, that's it. This has been League meeting. <laughs> no, please, please. I'll I'll sing some Judy Garland for you and, uh, and, and entice you back in. Ah, oh, you know the way to a man's heart. There, there it is. Uh, yeah, the one, the one guy I'd go gay for is I'm talking to right now. Um, total life change. It's a bit. It's been a conversion, my friends. But uh, no, but I, I agree. I was I was watching what Mark was doing, and um, mm. it's like you know you can't, you 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 can't. Um, and there's a process involved, you know, you watch him mm. do uh, interviews talking about it. And, uh, you know, it goes mm. back to what I was, um, I was watching some, um, or listening to some, um, um, some of the things that the Roger Scruton was saying, and um, he was mm. talking about beauty and form and redemption, really. Mm. And um, how, you know, beauty is something that you have to work at. It's a conscious process. Yes. And, um, you know, it, it only comes after great uh, striving with great vision and discipline. And mm. side note, it's funny you mentioned Denzel Washington, because I'm pretty sure he's conservative. And he's known. Oh, for, yes. Oh, yeah. Known definitely. for his work ethic. Yeah, there, there's no way he's not. Absolutely. Doesn't need to. No, no. Um, it, but like, it, it's just, you know, but he, he, there's nothing else that you can watch when he's out there. And he just, he moves the air when he, when he's out there. And, um, you know, it makes yes. me think about stories you would read about um, um, Michael Chekhov, who was the nephew of Anton mm. Chekhov, who was a great actor in his own right and had his own sort of method, which is very, he was kind of ahead of his time because he was talking about the psychophysical connection and spirituality and using the imagination to kind of go outside of yourself, kind of <laughs> mystical in a way. Mm. And, um, very, very, very fascinating. But you know, this idea that if um, I think there's sort of there's there has to be some sort of electrochemical process where you see a performer who is just operating on all of their imaginary creative cylinders, mm. and they, so much so that they just they you can't help but be affected uh, on some level by what they're by by what they're doing. I agree, but, but don't you think also some people just have. And it's, it's a term that's usually used about politics. And I don't like it, but some people have a presence and I never know if it's that they're born with it, developed it. You just can't take your eyes off them. I mean, Michael Gambon, for instance, um, I just can't take my eyes off him. And I've seen him on stage. I, I mean, one of the times it was a one man show, but he did Crap's Last Tape with Samuel Beckett once. And I mean, it was one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen. It, it, it just every facial muscle you just were completely obsessed by it. And another one who strikes me like that is Maggie Smith I've only seen her on stage a couple of times I once saw her in a really bad play by David Hare a two-hander that's never been revived and it was Maggie Smith and Judy Dench wow and and funnily enough Maggie Smith acted Judy Dench off the stage I mean really? you just Every, at some point, Maggie Smith sat down and crossed her legs on the floor and ate this sort of remainder of a curry out of a tin. And you were just fixated on her. Everything about her voice, every crack in her face, everything was just completely mesmerizing. And I don't know, do you, is that something people can work on or is it something that some people just have? 
Uh, I think it's a combination of both. Um, you know, I mean, for my for my undergrad days, I was told, you know, you're one of those people that I want to watch and what's going on. But at the same time, uh, it wasn't until I had elite training, and you know, and I and I I observed this in um, my colleagues as well who were in school. You know, you'd see people. Um, so it was a three-year program at NYU, conservatory program. Mm. And so you would you would see, you know, as a first-year student, you would watch the second-year second students and third-year students. So you mm. had no frame of reference for the third-year students, but you could see the second-year students. And then when they came back in their third year and you saw some people who were actually doing the work say, oh, my gosh, you know, th this actor was riveting. He was garbage a year ago. Um, right. Now... You know, and, and some of it, sometimes it's a, it's what the role is, you know, may, maybe the role is inspiring and that person fits the role in a certain way. Uh -huh. But um, a lot of it is just um, the ability to, the ability to be still, um, the ability to focus. I mean, the, the I love that um, uh, Maggie Smith uh, eating out of a 10 being mm. really, really um, enthralling because that's, you're, you're experiencing an actor who is so, um, they're so present and they're so alive and they're so uh, committed to what they're doing that you can't, mm. you know, th there seems to be no artifice about it. And, right. and, um, but they're just focused and, yes. you know, they're, they're yeah, breathing exactly. and they're in the space. Yeah. But you know, well, that, but that, I mean, that, that I can recognize that technique of making the effortless, uh, making it seem effortless when you know how difficult it is. There's yes. another example in Harold Pinter's No Man's Land, which is actually ca caught, the, the original production is caught on tape. I, I haven't seen it in some years, <laughs> but um, it was Richardson and Gielgud. And there's a scene in it in which Gielgud eats a, a plate of scrambled eggs. And <laughs> it's only if you've ever acted that you can realize how extraordinary Gielgud is in this scene that he perfectly balances every mouthful of scrambled egg as he's, as he's doing this on stage. And you know how hard it is. Yeah. And he makes everything effortless and he is totally mesmerizing. Um, anyhow, yes. Things like that are, are, are thrilling. If, if, if you, if you know how they're, if you know how they're done badly as well. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's so funny because, um, you know, it's, it, we, we, you mentioned simplicity before, and that's what we strive for. You do all that work. It's uh, Stanislavski, the great Russian um, mm. writer and director, who's widely credited with um, sort of inventing what's known as the method, although I think his mm. work is, was a little bit misunderstood. Um, yes. You know, he, he said, uh, you know, he, he mentioned that it's uh, what we do as actors. There are some people like, you know, Meryl Streep claims that she can pick up a script and she can just look at it and read it. And she kind of knows it. And, you know, her imagination works. Lawrence Fishburne says, mm. like, I, I just believe I'm these people. But um, mm. with uh, with um, I lost my train of thought again. Good Lord. This is really, really mm. bad. Um, it, um, Stanislavski. Oh, yes. He said, uh, you know, well, first he said, love, love the art in yourself, not, not yourself in the art. So I think sometimes you find yes. uh, people who are more concerned with their, I mean, there's that vanity again, but, mm. um, you know, but they're so self-involved that, um, that mm. it, it's off-putting. But yes, he yes, also, yes, absolutely. A certain, he also, type, a certain type of very beautiful male actor is guilty of that. I find that Jude Law, for instance, can be, it can be off-putting because he's so focused on the way in which he looks that it's anyhow. Maybe, well, maybe you're focused on the way he looks. Uh, well, of course, I'm him. focused on the way he looks. But yeah, but he talks about like the rehearsal process, and and the, mm. there's a phrase. It's a you're you're engaging in a conscious process 
to create unconscious results. And I always found that to be fascinating where, you know, because I mean, acting is a very weird sort of paradoxical process where you are, um, you know, like I said, you know, you're doing all this research, you're, you're reading a script over and over and over again, you're analyzing it every scene, every line, trying to figure out, you know, what's underneath all of this, what's the life underneath mm-hmm. all of this, what are the relationships, what's the conflict, um, you know, where is it in the story, what's the author trying to, to do here, mm-hmm. and um, you do all of that work, and then what all, all your teachers say, like, okay, now you've done all the work, let it go, you're, you're yes. in the scene now, you have to be alive, right, what, what happens is that with, you, you, some actors are so, you know, they, they've done the work, they're experienced, but they're so alive that they, mm. they're able to let themselves. There's an actor named J.O. Sanders, who's a, um, an older actor, but he's really great. But he's, he, he talks about allowing. You have to allow yourself to be that open mm. and present. And it takes, a real, it takes a real vulnerability to be able to do that. And, and what, what, yes. I, what I'm annoyed by right now is that, um, and I've mentioned this before, that the, the ideological conformity or, or is so rigid now in, in the performing mm. arts that uh, it's really difficult to feel like you can be totally open unless you tow a certain line. And yeah. I, I began to notice over time that, uh, you know, you, you kind of see people, these actors who are dead, dead behind the eyes. And uh, but then, you know, I, I remember I worked with one guy who um, he caught me reading uh, 12 Rules for Life and I was freaking out. But then he, he, he leans over. We're, we're doing some musical and he leans over. He's like. I'm also reading that book. <laughs> I think I think he's really great. But but, but here's song is that literature. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But 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 here's the thing, Douglas, because um, <laughs> you know, in in order to um, in order to fully be able to deliver yourself um, to a role, I mean, I had a teacher named Zelda Fitchandler, a brilliant, brilliant woman, who said, you know, that the work that we do in here. And the lives that we lead are not two different things. And, you know, one is going to inform the other and vice versa. And, you know, so any criticisms, um, any criticisms that I got as an actor, I always tried to work it back to what's going on with me. So it's like, oh, we don't think you're listening to your scene partner. Oh, it's because I have issues in my personal life about just being trusting and open with people. And so you work on these kinds of things over time. And, um, but what, what, what the thing is now is that, you know, if you're not comfortable in your personal life being, um, with those, with the darker parts of yourself, people call it finding your shadow or whatever, um, then you can't do it on stage. You can't even fake it on stage, even though that's where you're supposed to be faking it. And for me, I said, you know, people like myself, and again, I'm not some, you know, I joke all the time, you know, I'm pot smoking pro-choice atheist who, um, who loves show tunes and Judy Garland. I don't have a comfortable home on the right. I'm not talking about, you know, <laughs> Jewish conspiracies or anything like that. Um, you know, it, but it's just... Um, <coughs> And yet, and yet, especially after uh, after Trump was elected, um, people their brains just broke completely. And so, mm-hmm. what what I, what I began to do, and what many people I suspect are doing, is they're shutting a part of themselves down in order to conform and to continue yes. to work. Yes, yes, I think that's. And and my mm-hmm. thing is, if you keep doing that uh, over and over and over again, there's a part of your soul and your creative spirit that you are killing in order to conform, yeah. and. You know, and, and I just, I, so that's why, you know, that's why I'm more pessimistic than you, because I think that the, I think the talent is there. It's just mm-hmm. not going, it's just, it's, it's not in a machine right now that really encourages that but talent. It, but, but, it, but it will be at some point, Cliff. I mean, it will at some point. I mean, I, I just, by the way, very quickly, the, what you just described in acting is, is what in, um, in other terms we described as, you know, that, that, that thing of you need to learn the rules in order to know how to break them. 
uh, which obviously is particularly acute in in music and in writing. <clears throat> you know, you can't. You, you've got to do the discipline. You've got to have the discipline. You've got to learn how to do it. You you can't just break rules. You have to learn the rules and then know how to break them. And it's something like that that you've just described. You know, you have to know how to do all of the things and then let go. Um, uh, and and the, the worst thing is telling people that you don't have to do that first thing uh, because it's just a mess. It's just a mess technically and everything else. Um, the, the 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 thing you just describe. Um, I'm confident that 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 things always bubble up and will come back, and um, like the rigid conformity of our era that has existed is already starting to fracture and fray. Um, I'm very confident of that. Uh, it's 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 started um, already. And by the way, you can see I mentioned you were kind enough to mention in my recent book the the. the uh, the manuscript, the war on the west and in the war on the west the the, the culture chapter as you know um is it is in part a an assault that i that is overdue on the concept of appropriation cultural appropriation and part of the point of that chapter is to say i'm not having this none of us can have this and that is uh, cultural appropriation. The whole concept of that is one of the things that has been destroying the arts in recent years and making it rigid and making it conformist. In writing and in books, in book authoring, we have had authors cancelled, literally unpublished, dropped by their publishers when they are accused of writing a fictional character that does not conform with their own identity. So, no, no way not having it uh what people I, I i became very interested in cultural appropriation because i noticed the unbelievable um vapidity of the claims so for instance people would say things like halloween costume you know cultural appropriation was always being talked about in terms of halloween costume i don't give a damn about halloween costumes halloween is an overrated stupid festival i don't understand why it has a significance it has an american life I, 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 I but it's not important it's not the arts it's not culture it's a silly sometimes fun event why were people always talking about this in terms of cultural appropriation why were talking people talk about hair beading or hairstyles as a cultural appropriation. One of the things I came to, came to realize was because you'd have to do it on relatively frivolous things like this. Because if you, if you try this out on the things that matter, ideas, literature, music, uh, art, you can't do it because the whole thing is borderless. The whole thing is borrowing. The whole thing is listening and learning reading and acquiring new ideas. Who's going to police these boundaries? Like seriously, we had the other day, the news that Cambridge University in my own country of birth, <coughs> excuse me, that, that, that Cambridge University in England is in its, new, in its music syllabus is going to among other things, have a section on what they call um, musical appropriation. And the, some of the people accused of this are include uh, John Cage and Igor Stravinsky. Stravinsky did not musically appropriate, he listened. 
He listened. Um, the idea that you could accuse, and obviously I give examples in the culture chapter from the war on the West, but like, it's not a sin that Olivier Messiaen learns from Indian rhythm in the 1940s and incorporates it into his music. It's not a sin that Toru Takamitsu in Japan absorbs Debussy and Ravel. It's not a sin when artists listen to the work of different cultures and are so enamored of it that they want to incorporate it in their own arts. That's art, that's culture. So part of the conformity that you describe in our day, part of the things that's causing the deadness behind the eyes is the fear that you can't be open-eared, open-hearted, open-eyed, that you've got to stay in your lane, to quote one of the stupidest lines in a stupid era. No, don't stay in your lane. You don't have a lane. Nobody has a lane. And the whole concept of lanes is totally destructive to the creative arts and only leads to political manifesto writing or slipping into the permitted idea of the day. But that is so um, dominant now that I'm very confident that maybe there's, there are people watching who will be wanting to write plays or film scripts or wanting to write songs or wanting to perform or wanting to write books. There are people who will be watching this conversation who will be the people who will break this down and create again. Well, here's the thing, because... Um... You know, I, I share your optimism, but in a different in a different light, because I think that the, the machine as it stands right now is not at right now is not capable of allowing that to bubble up. But what's great now is that we have all of this technology um, like that. Yeah. I've, I've been wondering now what uh, what popular culture even means right now, because, um, mm -hmm. you know, people swear by, say, you know, CNN or or whatever. But I said, you know. But then you look at like Joe Rogan's uh, viewership. And so maybe that's what the popular culture is right now. Yes, and absolutely. And, you know, the era of, you know, I say all the time, the era of, of movie stars or, or what, we, what we looked at as fame is, is over now because it's all decentralized. And so mm. the, the person sitting at home watching this, someone made the point that said, you know, well, all the big actors now, they have like YouTube channels and social media. And so I'm, I'm like, yes, but they're also competing with mm. everyone else in the world for attention right now. Mm. And so what, I, what I'm confident about is that people uh, will say, you know what, I'm done with this. Just like you said, like, no, I'm not having it. And they're going to go off on their own and yes. create their own work. And now they have the tools and we have the technology now where they can broadcast it to the world. And Absolutely. You know, so people you know, ask me, you know, are you gonna go back to New York? And I'm like, you know, I don't know if I wanna do that, but because the thing is, and it goes back to what I was saying before, these people, they're making shows for themselves. And so mm. what happens is you become very insulated and you become, um, and you're, you're only performing, as you said, not for a mass audience, but you're performing for your, your quote unquote progressive peers. Yeah. Now, I think what's, what, what the possibility is, is that your, your audience no longer has to be, you know, the, the, the uh, erstwhile culture makers in, in New York mm -hmm. or LA. Now your audience can be the rest of the planet. And yes. that I think is a huge, huge um, positive development. And when, you, yes. you know, I mean, I'm, I'm watching, I go on Instagram and I watch these kids from Ghana who are dancing and mm. um, just, and, and it's so, it's so alive and so exciting. And, and mm. I'm like, dude, 
isn't it great that we live in a world now where you can have these Ghanaian kids um, mm -hmm. broadcast what they do? I mean, and, and these people are, you know, they're, they're selling T-shirts, they're, they're selling classes and tutorials and, the, you know, mm -hmm. they're filming this stuff. And I'm like, they, they have a whole thing going. And now we're living, we live in an era where I can discover who these people are. Mm, um, yes. So I, I think yes. on a broader scale, that's like, that, that's the positive development. I just, I just think that right now, um, in, in the arts culture, and, and I, I'm, I'll be curious to see what your journey is, uh, you know, as you as you continue to live in New York and see and see the work that's being done there, um, you know. But I, I think that that I mean, avenue is yes. sort of dying, if not dead. But but it, but it comes back in another form. I mean, I was um, at a comedy club the other night, um, uh, my friend Coleman Hughes, and we went down to see the uh, a live podcast um uh where, where that um michael moynihan uh, camille foster and others do uh, there's this uh, <clears throat> podcast is, is popular and uh, and there was a live um it was a live audience podcast and people paid to be in this comedy club where you could buy food and drink and watch these four guys a couple of guests riffing on well they, they didn't really know what they were going to do at the beginning but it was you know they just fell into something because they're all uh, very smart and good friends and things and we had a, a real ball of an evening and i i said after us common i said it's 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 sort of weird because if if even five years ago you'd you'd said hey douglas come downtown to see to see uh, some podcasters doing a live podcast in a comedy cellar i might have thought like what <laughs> um now i'm not saying that's the arts but i'm saying that packed audience apparently it's sold out in a day um um i think people are going to things like this yeah. um like they go to see jordan speak i mean jordan did two nights on broadway uh uh recently uh packed out i think they're going to these things and this is part of the halfway house to what i think both of us want to see which is a these ideas and this freedom being incorporated into the widest culture, you know, so that it's not just that we have, I don't know, podcasts and then the arts, but that this meets at some point. And it will, yeah. as I say, there will be people watching who will write the play that meet, that melds these things or the novel or the songs or the albums or whatever. Um, everybody who's thinking in this era, era is thinking about what, you and I are thinking about and the natural scale of numbers and talent and ideas out there means people will break through. They will. They always do. No, I, I, I agree. I think we're, we're sort of saying the same things, but, uh, I, but I also think that, uh, it's 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 gratifying to meet someone who um, is uh, more optimistic uh, than myself. I mean, I, I'm I don't maybe it's my Scorpio ness that uh, sort of wants to brood and and think about these <laughs> things. But uh, but you know, it makes me come back to you know, I, he, we always have to end these things on a more positive note. Um, you, you've I already done... look for a quote. Whilst you do, there's a quote I wanted to look for. But yes, do. Um, well, you know, th there's these words that keep popping up. Um, and, you know, you mentioned like in the madness of crowds, you talked about, um, I believe it was forgiveness. Um, in War on the West, you talk about gratitude. And there's also another word though, um, which, I, I, which I love when you talk about um, generosity, this mm. sort of, uh, you know, I, I coined with a, a teacher of mine, we, you know, we, co we, we co-coined this phrase called the, the arrogance of generosity that you have to have as an artist. You have to be arrogant enough to believe that whatever it is you have to say 
is worth hearing. And you, but you also have to be generous with what you do and, and give 110% of whatever it is you have to say, um, because it's not about, not about you. And, um, you know, I, I, I do think that there is, um, I think that the resurgence of these ideas, and you know, I think part of Jordan's popularity is, is, is uh, a part of this too. People are looking for these ideas of redemption and gratitude and forgiveness because perhaps we've yeah. gone too far in this, yeah. this um, era of condemning and cancellation. Yeah. Of course. Um, you know, so you know, maybe, maybe you've changed my mind a little bit. Maybe you know, I, I can you put a, put a little sunshine in my. Um, well, I think that I, I'm very pleased to hear life. it. <laughs> um, I think that I think that in, I think the era of well, there's two things that I think are, 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 I hope, are coming to an end, and I'm hoping to help push to an end. One is the era of grumbling and whining, the era of self-pity and um, complaint and resentment, which is what I particularly focus on in the war on the West. The, the culture of resentment that says, I haven't got everything I want, and I'm going to blame other people for it. Um, not everything in the past is exactly in line with what I want, therefore I'm going to condemn it. Not everything in the past and everyone in the past behaved as I would like them to behave if I knew them in 2022. So I'm going to condemn them and say they have nothing to offer me. I, I would like to see that come to an end and I'm trying to help that happen. <clears throat> the other thing I would like to see come to an end is the era of deconstruction. Deconstruction, which started in the French Academy and then went to America and then spilt out into all of the popular culture. Deconstruction, uh, should also come to an end. Uh, I was I joked in the man of the crowd that the only thing the deconstructionists wanted to not deconstruct was their own tenure. Um, but uh, deconstructionism is is the ability the, the the belief that there's something valuable in just pulling things apart, taking things apart. Let's interrogate this. That's one of the words. Let's interrogate this work of art. And what it usually means is pull it apart in the, in what is now a fairly doctrinal and boring way. Let's interrogate works for racism. Let's interrogate them for colonialist attitudes or attitudes that are in the era of slavery or something. Let's, it's always the same, or sexism and misogyny or, or um, transphobia, homophobia. Um, and they're always deconstructed in the same, same way. And that can be done endlessly. Um, I would like to see the era of deconstruction end and an era of construction to begin again. And artists and creative artists are gonna be absolutely central in that. To say, you know, we can deconstruct endlessly. We can look at a painting and we can say, um, were the pigments used to make these colors um, acquired honestly? Were they acquired dishonestly? Were they acquired with proper pay to the labor involved? Um, was the artist's assistant in the studio who helped mix these this 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 cobalt blue? Was he paid? Almost certainly, he paid appropriately, or was he effectively an indentured servant to the artist? You can do that endlessly, or you can stand back and look at a canvas like the Madonna or Sasso Ferrato. <clears throat> these are two different ways of life, and I would say that the second, the first, can have interesting consequences, but not endlessly interesting. The second is the thing to focus on, is the ability to stand back, the ability to see in the round, the ability to construct again. And artists have to construct. It's, it's, it's the great, it's the thing that makes artists actually brave, is you take your first foot forward, you make your first step forward into nothing. You don't know what will happen. 
And um, that's the, the excitement, the thrill, and it should be like that. Yeah, and you know, it, I, I, you mentioned before people saying things that you've been thinking, so I don't feel so bad. I mean, I think one, A, I always find it funny that the, the going back a little bit, the complaints about cultural appropriation, they never seem, you know, that there's this condemnation of, uh, of white European males, but no one ever seems to mind too much. The, the deconstructionists and postmodernists um, are a bunch of um, French and... Yes, <laughs> French and German white, white French. guys. Yeah, yeah. exactly. No, nope, nobody cares. We're we're not canceling Marx, um, you know, yes. because of his racism. But um, I wanted you know, to. I wanted to. Uh, sorry, go on. Oh, well, I was just going to say, you know, just an, an example of. Um, I mean, I, I think there is some utility in sort of questioning everything as an artist, being curious, deconstructing yes. things. But as you say, you know, like there was a there was a production of uh, of Othello that was done recently. Um, that they, you know, and but they they cast a a non-binary, aka genderless Othello. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, you're trying to break down these ideas of of gender, but the problem with that is that then if you have some five foot, you know, nine sort of frail person strangling, Des strangling Desdemona to death, it does not have anywhere near the same impact, no. visceral would, impact. Des Desdemona would punch them in the face. <laughs> yeah, but right, Clock right. them. <laughs> exactly. You know, but, but I'm saying, you know, but also the play, I mean, it, it deals so much with this sort of, I mean, it, you know, it's a war is the background of this play as, as in many of Shakespeare's yes. plays and, and military might. And so there's a, there's a level of fraternity and, and brotherhood and, yeah. you know, implicit um, trust on the battlefield among soldiers that you completely lose if you're that's, gender swapping uh, that, character. That's exactly what happened in the Daniel Craig Macbeth on Broadway. Yeah. The, at the end of the play, the kingdom is inherited by a blue haired lesbian. I don't think it's likely. I think that another Macbeth character is going to come along quite soon and kill her. Them. Them. Here. They. I mean, it, it is very, very frustrating that because, again, yes, you, you actually, you don't interrogate it. You don't do anything interesting. You actually just screw the whole thing up. Yeah. Can I just, just because you brought it to mind, and it's a quote that's often on my mind, but I never get right. And it's a point of optimism. Which, which comes from what I was trying to relay earlier as well. Do you know the great speech in Tom Stoppard's Arcadia um, about the lost plays? No, I haven't read Arcadia. Oh, God, it's such a, I such know, it's a, a brilliant play. Piece. Yeah. And it's not been revived for a while in, on Broadway. I wish it, I wish it were. Um, um, uh, anyhow, there's a great scene in it between the, it's, it's sort of early um, 19th century, and there's a, it's at an English country house, and there's a very, um, um, uh, um, ostentatiously sort of, you know, ambitious young woman who's being tutored by a very brilliant and witty sort of Wildian tutor called Septimus. And at one point, um, the, the pupil says, says this, it's a little bit, give me a moment. She says to him, oh, Septimus, how, can you bear it? All the lost plays of the Athenians, 200 at least by Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, thousands of poems, Aristotle's own library brought to Egypt by the Noodle's ancestors. How can we sleep for grief? How can we bear all of the things that were lost in the Library of Alexandria? And so on. And her tutor Septimus says, by counting our stock, seven plays from Aeschylus, seven from Sophocles, and 19 from Euripides, you should no more grieve for the rest than for a buckle lost from your first shoe or for your lesson book, which will be lost when you're old. We shed as we pick up, 
like travelers who must carry everything in their arms, and what we let fall will be picked up by those behind. The procession is very long and life is very short. We die on the march, but there is nothing outside the march, so nothing can be lost to it. The missing plays of Sophocles will turn up piece by piece or be written again in another language. Ancient cures for diseases will reveal themselves once more. Mathematical discoveries glimpse and lost to view will have their time again. You do not suppose, my lady, that if all of our comedies had been hiding in the great library of Alexandria, we would be at a loss for a corkscrew. Um, tearing up a little bit. Um, such a wonderful sentiment. Um, I feel Isn't like it's it? sort, of, sort of a perfect place to close, I think. I feel bad because, uh, you know, we, we didn't talk about that much about this fantastic book, The War on the West. Um, but you have to go pick it up. It's uh, it's doing really well right now. You keep tweeting about it. So mm. I, 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 um, I, I imagine it's doing wonderful things for you. But uh, make sure you also check out um, his other work, uh, including The Madness of Crowds. And uh, if you want to really cheer yourself up, The Strange Death of Europe. Stop um, saying that. <laughs> People will buy it thinking it is Prozac. <laughs> it's not. It's the most depressing book I've ever had to write, but yes. Oh gosh. Well, you know, you know what, and this is sort of a, a side note, but one thing that really stuck with me from that book, um, which I, which I have not been able to unsee since is this idea of, um, I mean, among many other things, obviously, but this idea that you have these cultural and political elites who are stampeding into one direction uh, to the mm -hmm. left. And yet you have everyone else who's either staying put or they're slowly marching over to, you know, what's, I guess you can call it the right or whatever, or the, or the opposite mm -hmm. direction. Mm -hmm. And so that, that disconnection there, it, it, it harkens back to what we were saying about, um, you know, the people in this machine are making shows for themselves as opposed yes. to for everybody else. But that is, that is neither here nor there. And did you, I think you mentioned before you have, you have a, another one of your older books being republished. Is that true? Uh, my first book, actually, a biography of Alfred Douglas, the man who brought down Oscar Wilde, was republished uh, two years ago on the 20th anniversary of its first publication, which makes Beautiful. me feel wildly old. Yes. <laughs> Oh, yeah. you know, I, I, I got to have you back and talk about um, Oscar Wilde. I feel like uh, that, that's oh, a whole yeah, other, yeah. uh, other subject that I would love to talk yeah. to you more about. No, I'd but, love uh, that. I'd love that. Well, we should definitely do this again. This has oh been such God. a pleasure for me. Oh, my God. Douglas has been, uh, it's, it's so great um, uh, talking to you and, uh, and, and touching base with you. And, um, you know, and I if you know ever get back to New York, can, can we definitely hit the, uh, the, the cabaret bars? <laughs> Bro, you, I'm I'm dead serious. I'm so. Like, what's what's your what's your what's your repertoire? Do you know any uh, do you know any <laughs> musical theater songs? Like, what's what's, what's, in, what's in your songbook? Uh, uh, the classic American songbook. Okay, well, Gershwin, well, Cole Porter, Irving Berlin, all that sort of stuff. You know what? We 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 can do that. I you know I we gotta I, we gotta go to the Carlisle and haul whoever's there away from the mic. <laughs> you know, well, you know, I I will let uh, I'll let you handle that. You're the one who's uh, <laughs> built like a bodyguard now. Ha, 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 ha.